Hi, this is Steve Addison and you're listening to The Movements Podcast. The podcast for people who want to multiply disciples and churches everywhere. Welcome to the next installment of the series we're doing with Nathan Shank on discovering the missionary task. Today's lesson concerns church formation. Welcome back to the self-discovery series. My name is Nathan. Today we have the opportunity as we gather with our disciples to move forward in the matter of disciple making to consider the, the next step in the missionary task, the matter of church formation. Just as we studied with disciple-making, how we might get started making disciples, so in the next few videos in this series, we want to move forward, we want to progress in the matter of starting in church formation. Now you remember last time we gathered, previously, as we considered discipleship, we looked into the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, to make a list of the obedience, the the disciplines that those first disciples seemed to be obeying. By doing so, we also recognized this was a matter of devotion. Among those who had come to faith at the day of Pentecost, the Bible says in Acts 2.42 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Presumably then, those same apostles, beginning to fulfill, carry out the Lord's commission, as they were instructing disciples to observe all that Jesus had commanded. Well, then we recognize what was stewarded in personal disciplines, applied personally in the disciplines of these first disciples, when stewarded corporately, when gathered together, become for us the first church functions in Acts chapter 2. So that Acts 2, 41 through 47 would give for us a list of what the first churches did. So our list of personal disciplines for the new disciple, whether that's matters of repentance and faith or baptism, whether it's matters of love or giving or even uh, devoting themselves to the teaching of the word, the breaking of bread and Lord's Supper or the sharing of witness, whatever we listed there, today we recognize as the functions of the very first church, even in the same context, the same passage. I want you to turn with me then to Acts chapter 2, and as you gather your disciples, we'll begin by considering an often overlooked aspect of church formation, the matter of church identity. As you look with me in Acts 2.41, we see there that those who accepted the message were baptized, and 3,000 were added to their number that day. I believe, often overlooked, this is a first symbol for us, a, a description of church identity. It seems to me, as Peter proclaimed the good news of the gospel, as those who accepted the message were baptized, more than 3,000 baptisms there, what we call the beginning of the church age, the birth of the church in Jerusalem at the day of Pentecost. Do you realize that on that day, they knew who was in and they knew who wasn't? 
We see the same phrase again in verse 47, where as they go about witnessing, presumably those disciples now also stewarding the good news around Jerusalem, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. But it's more than this also the matter of being. More than doing, they were being the church there in Jerusalem. We have found in our ministry over years of investment in the missionary task of church planting that this matter, the matter of corporate identity, recognizing and devoting themselves to the number, it consistently has a part to play in the sustainability of our church planting efforts. Over and over again, across hundreds of churches, we've studied and seen that this matter of identity is actually a key factor in the sustainability, the attrition of churches that might have been started. Where churches move from doing or not doing to being church, church attrition goes down. The longevity of those churches we start seems to grow And so as we consider the New Testament today, as we look across the New Testament for this matter of identity, who is the church? Uh, We might wish for a verse that we could go to that defines church for us. In fact, such a verse doesn't exist in the New Testament. Instead, what we have in the New Testament instruction is a series of metaphors, of word pictures that the authors of the New Testament use to teach us about church identity. As you gather your disciples together today, I'm going to give you a list of these passages, beginning in 1 Corinthians, extending also through the book of Ephesians, 1 Timothy, and 1 Peter. I'm going to ask you a key question. As you consider these verses appearing for us on the screen, as you gather your disciples, ask this question among you. What do these word pictures, what do these New Testament metaphors teach us about who the church is, about church identity? Take a few minutes with your disciples, and when you've studied, we'll come back together and discuss and wrap up. All right, as we gather back together, I trust that this study was of value for you and your disciples. I imagine some of these metaphors may have, have uh, even are beloved in your heart or in your ministry. Whether we think of the church as the body of Christ or, for that matter, the temple of the Holy Spirit from 1 Corinthians. Whether we consider the the living stones being built into a spiritual household in 1 Peter 2, or in Timothy, the, the pillar and buttress of the truth. In each case, the metaphors of the New Testament teach us, they spur us on to go beyond what the church might do or not do, to actually be the church with those with whom we're committed. Do you are you committed to the number? Have you been able to teach, and and, and even among new disciples, how do we cast vision that they might also be the bride of Christ? I trust that these passages will be of value to you.
taking time in the coming weeks and months as you pursue church formation to study such passages with your disciples in each case will catalyze, will allow the New Testament to speak into who we are as the body of Christ. As I said previously, we have found this matter of identity to be of critical importance in the sustainability of church planting. I trust that as you go about with your disciples, the same passages will be of value, of use to you as well. Let me conclude today by just considering Christ's expectation, His, His purpose for the church even in eternity. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 10 and 11, we read these words of Paul. His intent, God's intent, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom, if you will, the multifaceted wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities, even in the heavenly realms, according to His eternal purpose that He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you realize this identity? the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. This is an identity we carry with us into eternity. The the beauty and manifold wisdom of God, like a diamond, no matter which way it's beheld, the church gives testimony even in eternity to the wisdom of God, the beauty in what He's created that reflects His glory even among the rulers and and authorities in the heavenly realms. Surely, surely it's of great inheritance. It's of great joy to receive that inheritance even as we walk in this world. As we continue in the matter of church formation here in the discovery, self-discovery series, we want to again return to that valuable passage, Acts chapter 2, with a very simple question today. As we consider the first churches that gathered there in Jerusalem, we ask the question, where did those churches meet? We trust that the, the answers to that simple question across the New Testament are instructive for us, if not freeing for us, in the matter of gathering new churches together. As you go to Acts chapter 2, as we look again together at this passage, the first churches there gathered on the day of Pentecost, verse 46 tells us that they met together daily, both publicly there in the temple courts, but also house to house where they would carry on the breaking of bread and fellowship. You realize that this introduction of the the home of the believer is consistently applied across the New Testament. In fact, throughout the first centuries of the church, this venue, the home of new believers, served the gathering of the church wherever the kingdom of God expanded. It's uh, instructive for us. It's, It's interesting to us to recognize even on that day of Pentecost, with more than 3,000 there gathered, having been baptized, joined together with the pre-existing 120, it might be, in in the case of an affluent home, that 120 might gather in an upper room for prayer, even as they awaited Pentecost. But there, as the churches are gathered in Acts chapter 2, as they begin to spread out in homes around the city, we're, we're instructed by scholars like Roger Gehring or Eckhard Schnabel to look and to see that the typical house in Jerusalem, even an affluent home in the city of Jerusalem, might be host to 30, not more than 50 people at a time. 
to gather 3,000 new believers in homes? As many as 100 new homes or different homes might have been employed, might have been used as the venue for these first church functions. This pattern, the use of those homes, more than just a matter of convenience, maybe more than just efficiency in resources given to the kingdom, it seems to be even a matter of preference for some of the believers. Uh, So it is with Paul. Whether by his persecution in Acts chapter 8, Ashley tells us that Paul went from house to house in order to arrest the believers, to drag them back to Jerusalem. But for that matter, everywhere that we see Paul engaging in church planting, we see him utilizing homes for the sake of gathering new believers. We want to do this study across the New Testament. So as you gather your disciples... We're going to ask this simple question across these passages that appear in our self-discovery study today. The key question, where did the New Testament churches gather? Take a few minutes with your disciples. Let's see if we can establish and demonstrate a pattern. I trust as we do this study, as we conclude this survey across the New Testament, we see the pattern. In fact, the unanimous use of the homes as the venue for local church. Beyond the temple in Jerusalem, which we know was destroyed right around the end of the New Testament era, the homes of new believers seem to be the venue, the gathering place for believers. The right place and venue for worship of the one true God. You recognize that this might be more than just a matter of convenience or efficiency. It might be more than a matter of security. It might actually be a preference or a preferred model and method in the church planning ministry and example of the Apostle Paul. For wherever we see households coming to faith, Acts chapter 10, there under the ministry of Peter is Cornelius and his household who come to faith and are baptized. Presumably, then, the Caesarean church begins from that home, the home of Cornelius. In Acts chapter 16, first the Lydia and her household are baptized. There also the Philippian jailer and his household dedicate themselves to Christ in the acceptance of baptism. And the Philippian church begins in one of those homes. So it is in Corinth in Acts 18. The household next door to the synagogue, that of Titius Justice and Stephanus, his household, there also Crispus and his household being baptized, and the Corinthian church begins. It seems then that Paul was willing to make use of the home, even of the new converts. Of course, the New Testament is pioneer in its context. Everywhere Paul or Peter went outside Jerusalem, we have a pioneer context for the gospel, for the expansion of the kingdom. Could it be that beyond just convenience, it it might have been a matter of preference? And I wonder how it fits with our expectations today. How does it fit with our traditions in the church planting task or the missionary task as we go about Uh, establishing churches, are we willing to consider homes of the new believers as the gathering place for new churches? Today, we consider a third study in the matter of church formation. 
As we think about gathering disciples and forming New Testament churches, today we want to consider the simple question, how did New Testament churches make decisions? Whether it was the matter of selecting leaders, whether it was the matter of clarifying the gospel, or for that matter, even the, ma- the pursuit of holiness, the matter of church discipline. We believe that a pattern emerges in the New Testament, a pattern that's instructive, a pattern that will help us as we consider how churches might make decisions uh, in our ministry as we pursue the Great Commission. Have you considered in Acts chapter 6 the choosing of what we often call the first deacons, verse 1 through 7, show us that the local congregation was involved. In fact, those apostles who intended to devote themselves to the teaching of the word and to prayer gathered the whole church together. They said, in, in fact, choose among yourselves seven men known to be full of the Holy Spirit, and we will give this task over to them. Having selected seven, having put forward those to the apostles, the apostles then agree uh, with the idea, these seven, that presumably please the whole group, the Bible says. Uh, This pattern in choosing of leaders is, is consistent also in the ministry of Paul. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the the places we traditionally go to to recognize the qualifications of church leaders, of elders, overseers. In both of these passages, we see a list of characteristics that are based on character, matters of reputation. In which case, for Timothy and Titus, those going about seeing the appointment of leaders in local churches, it seems that Those leaders who were to be above reproach, those leaders who were to be not a brawler and not a drunkard and not a lover of money, the testimony of the local congregation had to be intact, had to be considered. As surely as matters of reputation were on the table, were considered for leadership, even the testimony of one member of that church suggesting that they're a lover of money or that they, they, they're a brawler or don't manage their household well. Even one could bring reproach on a leader and presumably disqualify. And so consensus among the local believers had to be considered. Not just a matter of choosing leaders, but by Acts chapter 15, specifically the Jerusalem council, yes, the apostles and the elders are there convened, gathered together to clarify the one true gospel, even as it was proceeding among the Gentiles, among other groups beyond Jews. And there in verse 22, as the apostles have spoken, as James and Peter have given the advice, their thinking related to the purity and clarity of the gospel, It seems as they decided how to send out the message, verse 22 tells us that the entire gathering, the whole body gathered and agreed in the matter of sending the letter back to the Gentile churches. This is consistent with the book of Galatians, again into Paul's ministry, where there in chapter 1 and 2, the clarity of the gospel is at stake based on Judaizers, those who would come and teach a matter of legalism or the the law of Moses for the sake of salvation. And in this regard, in Galatians, it 
we receive instruction recognizing that every believer, the Galatian believers, in fact, are held responsible by Paul to demand that the teaching of the gospel, the clarity of the gospel, be consistent with what had been passed to them. They were responsible as a body to clarify the truth. Today, as we, we're going to consider a third category of decision-making. Actually, the ma- in the matter of church discipline, we see the same pattern of congregation's involvement, every believer's responsibility in the matter of dealing with sin. So today's key question, as you gather with your disciples, I want you to consider this self-discovery study. Our key question today, how did the New Testament church deal with sin? Here are a few verses Beginning in Matthew, from the Lord's own instruction related to church discipline, you might be familiar with this passage. It's only one of two places that Jesus himself uses the word ecclesia, church, here in Matthew at chapter 18. We also are going to look at a case study. From the book of Corinthians, the Corinthian church, first in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, but also, I believe, the same example in 2 Corinthians chapter number 1 and 2, chapter 2, verse 4 through 11 specifically, where first the matter of discipline is instilled or given over to the Corinthian church, but then also the matter of restoration in 2 Corinthians, where the brother who has repented is to be restored. Finally, we're going to consider a passage in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that demonstrates discipline, even related to leaders. How, if an accusation comes against a leader, is the church to respond and to react? And the key question again for us as you gather with your disciples, how was the church involved in relating to sin, in dealing with sin within the body? Take a few minutes with your disciples. Consider the study and we'll come back together. We don't always think about decision-making as a tool for maturity. And yet everywhere we see responsibility and authority, whether it's the choosing of leaders or the clarity of the gospel, even this matter of dealing with sin within the body of Christ, wherever the believers are involved, presumably that responsibility stretches them and grows them, leads them to further and deeper commitment to each other and to the expectations of the groom, of Christ, for his body, for his bride, the church. This New Testament example then shows for us that when the body of Christ wrestles together, we see them bound that much more. We have seen in in our own church planning ministry, over and over again, when a body of believers wrestles together in decision-making, that responsibility, that authority, that sense of ownership of Christ's expectation is a consistent catalyst to their growth. Whether it's the choosing of leaders, whether it's the clarity of the gospel, whether it's even dealing with sin, whether it's the designation and use of their own offering. I wonder today, as you consider church planning, how you might leverage decisions, the inevitable decisions and processes that come in front of every church. How will you leverage those opportunities to grow and give responsibility to the local body? 
Welcome again to the Self-Discovery Series. Today, we carry on with the matter of church formation. And again, as we have over the last several gatherings, several studies, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 2, considering again the, the, the beauty and the testimony that is baptism. That in the Romans 6 tells us, in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ, the matter of baptism is a matter of remembrance. It's a matter of identity. Identifying that we too have died, we've been buried, and we rose again. That this first ordinance given to, by Christ to the church is a matter of admittance in Acts 2.41. For those who had accepted the message were baptized, and 3,000 were added to the number, even on the day of Pentecost. Now, as we go forward in Acts 2, 42-47, the matter of devotion to the apostles' teaching led those same disciples, there scattered in homes around Jerusalem, to a very interesting phrase. As we consider the functions of the church, and in this case, a second ordinance given by Christ among his body, among the church. Today, we consider the matter of Lord's Supper. In Acts 2, it's actually the phrase, the same phrase used by the Lord in the, uh, as he gathered with his disciples uh, just before the crucifixion, before his arrest. What we often call the Last Supper was a matter of the breaking of bread. In Acts 2, that same phrase is used, where the disciples in Jerusalem gathered in homes, they gathered in part for the sake of breaking bread together. This, we believe, is the Lord's Supper, that there from the first days of the church in Acts chapter 2, not only was baptism practiced for the identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, but also this ever-after command, this ordinance, that whenever they gather, whenever they partake, they should do it in remembrance of Christ. The Lord's Supper was to be a lasting ordinance for this body, for the churches, wherever they might gather. In today's self-discovery study, we're going to ask you to consider the passages in Matthew and Mark and in Luke. We're going to ask two simple questions. What is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? as it was instituted, given to us by Christ, by the Lord. And a second question today, what does the Lord's Supper teach us? As you consider the Lord's own instruction in the Gospels, we're also going to consider a case study in the example of Paul, so that we look also, and we add to this list, 1 Corinthians 11. And as the Corinthian church had been given the responsibility to, to rightly handle the elements, the body and the blood, and the distribution of the Lord's Supper, the remembrance of Christ's sacrifice, uh, in that case study, where and how were they practicing? What needed correction? And what were the Corinthians learning related to the purpose and the teaching instruction coming and flowing from the Lord's Supper? Take a few minutes with your disciples. As you consider these two questions, and I trust this study will be of value to you. Well, then, just like baptism, the Lord's Supper is an ordinance that does teach us identity. It causes us to remember who we are in Christ, why we're dependent on Him, why we might identify with Jesus as our Lord. 
as you considered the purposes of the gospel or the purposes of the Lord's Supper, surely a remembrance of that gospel is there, ever present. Every time we break the bread, every time we pass the cup as a body, we're remembering the Lord's sacrifice. The Lord's Supper doesn't only teach us and remind us of the gospel. What did you find? How did, what did you discover as you studied with your disciples? Did you notice that it also reminds us, it causes us to, to, to plead for and to anticipate even His second coming? For surely the Lord will not eat this supper until we eat it together in His kingdom. We're reminded then to anticipate His coming. Do you realize in the case study in 1 Corinthians, whether it was the matter of unity or fellowship, or for that matter, self-examination, or even the discipline of confession, in all these ways, the Lord's Supper is instructing the believers, the disciples there in Corinth. We also recognize uh, simply that the Lord's Supper teaches us worship. At the edge of the Great Commission, where we find ourselves pursuing the missionary task, even in our own church planning efforts, where people and new disciples may come out of other world religions, I'll tell you, there may be no better way to teach and introduce the concept of worship, biblical worship, than to take a piece of bread and break it, to take a cup and pass it. This is our Lord's body and blood. Let's worship Him even as we celebrate this Lord's Supper. In all these ways, then, the Lord's Supper is instructive. It teaches us. It might be that beside the Bible, next to the Word of God, which is living and active in our presence, the Lord's Supper might be the greatest tool for disciple-making, for teaching the new disciple that is given by the Lord. I wonder if we at times take it for granted. I wonder, as you consider the Lord's Supper afresh and new with your disciples today, how are you implementing? How are you being taught by this tool that was given by the Lord? Is your church struggling with unity, with identity? Is your church, wouldn't it be valuable to remember the gospel, to identify again with Christ and with each other? Is your church struggling with sin? Maybe self-examination, maybe Confession is the need of the hour. Have you considered how the Lord's Supper might be used to catalyze, to spur on those disciplines? In all of these things, even where we gather for worship, we can do no better than to remember Christ broken for us, a remembrance of the gospel. I trust as you consider the Lord's Supper, as you practice it in your church planning ministry, God bless you. You'll find a link to Nathan's videos in the show notes. Great for sitting around as a team and working through each of the discovery lessons.